and welcome to Informatics in the Round. I'm Kevin Johnson, and I'm so glad you decided to spend an hour listening to this. So, COVID-19, pandemics, and informatics. What do they all have in common? Well, each of them, as it turns out, is a response to the emergence of this virus that has never infected humans until now. It's causing a new disease. For those of you who didn't know, COVID-19 actually means novel coronavirus 2019 disease. COVID-19 is certainly a disease coming from an infectious organism, coronavirus, and we now have cases on virtually every continent. The definition of a pandemic. As of now, there are no cases in Antarctica, for those of you keeping track. The role of informatics and data analytics in understanding this disease and communicating treatment options around the globe has been profound. I thought it would be useful to discuss the informatics aspects of this, given the times in which we live. Melissa McFeeters is an expert in epidemiology, health policy, and informatics at Vanderbilt, who has received a PhD in epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2003. She's actually been on faculty here for 10 years as director of the Vanderbilt Evidence-Based Practice Center before taking on an incredibly tough role as the director of the Office of Informatics and Analytics at the Tennessee Department of Health and principal investigator on three federally funded grants to address the opioid epidemic, each with a strong focus on analytics. We were incredibly fortunate to get Melissa back here to do a number of projects, and her timing couldn't have been better, both in terms of the role she's playing at Vanderbilt and the connection that she's had between Vanderbilt and our Tennessee Department of Health. You'll hear a lot about that on this podcast. Josh Peterson is an internist, a brilliant informatician, and truly a world expert in precision medicine. He received his MD through the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in 1997, then completed an internal medicine residency at Duke University Medical Center, a fellowship in general internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and a master's of public health degree at the Harvard School of Public Health. So he's been getting a little bit of education along the way. Josh is known internationally for his work in precision medicine. He's been coordinating a set of national responses to the disease, as well as spending time on the front lines of care, and we'll talk about both of those. He's got some great comments to make about telemedicine and how well that's gone and how well that has changed the way people think about the role of telemedicine in healthcare. One of the potential really positive outcomes of everything that's gone on with COVID-19. It's a pleasure to have Shannon Rich back and on hand to keep it real. Shannon is a lot of things, insightful, unafraid, and so quick-witted. But it was hard to be witted in a room with this topic, which literally has changed the course of how we live and think. Shannon did her best. Finally, Charles K. Brown, singer, songwriter, and a friend of mine. Charlie Brown, yes, that's actually his name, is the first person I ever met whose birthday was April Fool's Day. I remember asking him if his parents named him Charlie Brown as an April Fool's Day joke. He didn't answer. But he does speak volumes with his songwriting here in town and around the country. He's on YouTube, and I hope you'll take a listen to his work there. Charlie and Shannon really listened carefully and asked a lot of questions. But it was clear that there was one central issue on both of their minds, so we just went there. We covered relatively little about the range of ways informatics is involved in collecting data, sharing it for prediction and research, and also making changes to the electronic health record to support the rapid dissemination of knowledge to nurses and physicians who are caring for these patients. But trust me, all that is happening around the world right now. Instead, we focused on a couple of other things. And as always, I want the conversation to be one that is led by our non-informatics guests. So that's where we went. I think it will resonate well with a lot of you and give those of you who are fellow informaticians like me some practical and useful ideas for work we need to do better in the future. Well, in the words of Mark Murren, whose podcast WTF is one I listen to regularly, let's do this. Maybe I was a terrible singer, but you know, like in ninth grade, you think you're like great at a bunch of stuff that you're really terrible at. And this, I may have been one of those things. Hey, it's all relative, right? If you're yeah. from a small town, you might think you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So Melissa, tell us about you. So I'm a professor in health policy and biomedical informatics um, and also technologically challenged, which it's a miracle that they let me into biomedical informatics. Well, I, don't, I think those two things sound mutually exclusive. How can you do that and be now, that? Kevin is very kind and uh, he lets me play with these super cool people and do some fun stuff. But I've been working on COVID. I'm also an epidemiologist by training. So I come from a public health background. Um, Wonderful. And, I'm going to learn something here today. So it's all COVID all the time these days. So Charlie, you're kind of an engineer, right? I mean, you handle sound equipment? With a Bachelor of Science in Recording Industry Management from uh, MTSU, you would think that I knew how to record, but I've always depended on the kindness of strangers to get the recordings that I've gotten because I concentrate more on what you know, the song and the content is. Uh, I've always been on the other, this side of the microphone. I'm in awe of people who produce and arrange their own material. It just blows me away. I'm Shannon Rich, and um, I used to work with Kevin at Vanderbilt, and now I'm nobody. Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> I think so. That makes, by the way, that makes my impact on your life look really good. I appreciate it. It is. You reach the pinnacle when you work with Kevin and then it's all over. Yeah. Right? So I thought, I thought we would start today by showing you guys a little bit of a video of one of our special guests who's here. So I've teed up this video um, and Charlie promised not to like yell at me for showing it. Here it is. No, I'm, I wanted you to show that. Okay. John Prines, hello in there. Say, 
When Rudy asks what's new I say nothing, what's with you? Nothing much to do You know that old trees just grow stronger While old rivers grow wilder every day Ah, but old people just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in the Charlie, that's an amazing, amazing recording. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was where, hard to Where are those pictures from? Uh, my, my friend Freddie Freeman got pictures. Some pictures were just off the internet, and some were mo home movies. Like, for instance, Loretta in the video is my mother. Wow. And my friends were John and Linda. That was actually Pete and Julia. And we, he just used snippets and whatever we had at hand to kind of enhance the video watching performance there. Um, Nashville has had a year of years. I mean, 2020 has been a tornado. It's been, um, you know, and, and we thought we would get through that the same way we did the flood. Then it's been the coronavirus um, pandemic. And that's what we're going to talk about a lot today. But you add to that the fact that a lot of people who knew the coronavirus pandemic was going to affect people didn't think it was going to ha happen to them. And one of the wake-up calls recently was the death of John Fine, who was a, a songwriter, Charlie, who you knew a lot about, right? Oh, I followed John Prine since I was 14 when that very first album came out. I was profoundly affected by his, his songwriting and his, uh, just his point of view, I think. Shannon, do you, by the way, do you know anything about John Prine or have you been affected? So, well, I mean, between the tornado and then COVID-19, I've basically been isolated for the month. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I, knew, I found somebody that I knew that had it. Right now, one of her friends is dying in the hospital, it, it sounds like, wow. who's in their 40s. Um, so I know three people. So yeah, it, it's scary. And the misinformation, especially on social media is horrifying. And if you try to tell somebody, this is, we don't know enough about this virus to say things like that and about herd immunity and everything else. And they get so politicized and so hostile about it. I feel like going well, some problems are going to take care of themselves, but that doesn't seem very humanitarian to me. No, but, no, no. But it's, it, it's a frustrating time, and it's, it, I, I can't imagine anybody not being really affected by this. So, right? Yeah. Josh and Melissa, I'm just curious, how are you guys dealing with this misinformation problem? You're both at the front lines in different ways. So, so I spend a fair bit of time trying to put good information out there. I mean, a lot of what you know, I sit sort of at that edge of healthcare and public health. And so as an epidemiologist, a lot of my friends and family have been looking to me to get them good information. So I spend a fair bit of my day reviewing studies, reviewing what's coming out there and really trying to parse out what is real and what where we're getting ahead of our skis, so to speak, on some of the things that are out there and put good information out. I stopped trying to correct everything I saw on social media. <laughs> it just would have taken all of my time. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I think the other part of it is we have a, have a very strong group of epidemiologists that sort of get together at least once a week via Zoom to kind of commiserate. That makes me feel a little less alone in that activity. Yeah, don't you wish there was a way we could go to all these websites and just, you know, I tell people all the time to go to Snopes. There mm -hmm. is no Snopes equivalent for this, you know. Maybe, maybe one of the things we should be thinking about is how do you do the kind of real-time fact-checking? Like, you're not, this is not the only place, but this is not a reputable site, because... I mean, I get a lot of questions from my patients about um, coronavirus. I think that they do pick it up on the web and on social media and uh, unfortunately on TV. <laughs> and so... Whatever uh, do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's natural in these kind of uh, natural disasters, some natural disasters and pandemics that uh, there's a lot of speculation. So, I mean, speculation is really rampant and that um, happens even on major news channels. And so I think that I do spend a lot of my time conversing with patients uh, about the things that um, really have very little evidence and are potentially harmful to them. Um, and since we've moved to telemedicine entirely, that has meant that, you know, most of my conversations with them are actually over messaging. So I have a quick question about telemedicine. I was thinking about that before this call. Did you guys anticipate, I, I know that everybody in virology and epidemiology all anticipated what we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. They've talked about it for a long time. I've read a lot of books about it in the past. I'm not doing that today because it's kind of sad. But did, did you foresee telemedicine being used in this way, in this kind of circumstance? And have we leveraged it the right way? Well, I'll speak for myself to say that I did not. I, I didn't really sort of follow the pandemic idea to its logical conclusions. And so I did not think we would be in the situation in February. I will say that I'm really proud of my colleagues and uh, who have really stepped up to implement telemedicine very, very quickly, even though that's not the way they were trained uh, to practice. And, and I think it's been effective for the most part. It's not the same as seeing people in the office. And I think there are some limitations that are maybe a problem in terms of how well you can take care of patients. But I do think that we are doing the best we can. And I, I do think it's important that we don't bring our vulnerable patients in into a setting where obviously they're at higher risk uh, just by being there. You know, telemedicine has saved us on this because once mm -hmm. we started the whole process of, of sort of self-quarantine and everything else, staying at home, the, the next question is, how do I follow up with my doctor? And, you know, I, I don't know if, if um, a lot of the people who would listen to this or see this or who are on our call know, but there's been this almost peculiar decrease of people who are coming to the hospital with the usual problems. So as opposed to saying this has been additive, it's been kind of substitutive, which means eventually this is gonna, you know, as they say, the chickens are coming home to roost. So eventually there will be a writing of this. So I would agree, Charlie, that the time to learn how to use this stuff and to get it all locked in is gonna be now. Because, um, you know, also, I don't know if any of you, have any of you experienced any problems? Not as I do. Say that again. I said, do as I say, not as I do. That's right. Although if I, you know. my example because it's been horrible. Right although now. we see you cleaning, so that part we do want to do. You know, I never sit in this part of the house, and I'm sitting here going, this is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Well, for people who are listening to this, by the way, this is our first ever um, Zoom uh, version of this podcast. So we get to see each other's virtual backgrounds or real lives. And for those of you who are watching it on YouTube, um, feel free to uh, ignore those things you want to ignore and enjoy the fact that we're doing something we've never done before. Um, are we you, on YouTube? We are on YouTube. With this hair? Yes, you are. No earrings? Why would you do this to me? You have earrings. They look a lot like uh, some African thing that you put in the pinna of your ear, though. Yeah, it's what I wear all day to talk to work. So oh, there it is. Okay. I feel naked without it now. Yep. Hey, so, okay, let me ask an informatics question. Dealing with issues uh, like what we talked about at the very beginning with, with John Prime, if you could imagine that all of this computer and information technology and information 
was here to help you deal with coronavirus, what would you want to see it do? I would want to see it, first of all, present accurate information up to date and, and to tackle all the rumors and the half-truths. Uh, I'd want people to feel like they had a reliable place they could go for accurate information and yeah. advice. Are we doing anything in that regard, guys? Well, I think we're working hard as, as individuals and scientists to get the right information out there. I do think that inaccuracies fill a void. And when we don't do a good job of getting data out there ahead of it, ahead of the questions and ahead of the concerns, which leaves people wondering, that's when that, that rumor mill really starts up. So um, I think we were a little bit slow on that with this, frankly. You know, it started up in the United States and, and we didn't get enough information out there fast enough that was accurate and we didn't get enough local and regional data out there that was accurate for people to really anchor to. So we probably could have done better with that. So Shannon, are we doing a good job? It, I think it really depends on the sophistication of the consumer of the data. You know, if you don't have the ability to separate the wheat from the chaff, then I think you're in a lot of trouble. And I think if you are listening to bad information for seven weeks, I think you're in more trouble than if you've been seeking out different opinions and kind of trying to make the best decisions you can with that information. And I, and I just don't think we can count on the majority of the population to figure this out correctly. Yeah, so I would add that, um, you know, good science and good data science actually should be done slowly if possible. And so you can accumulate a lot of data and that people, it's sort of human nature to be attracted to people who are assertive with their opinions. And for us to say, we don't know certain aspects of how to treat the virus or how to recognize the virus. Um, that is something that is, you know, difficult, I think, for people to hold on to. They much rather sort of hold on to the idea that we do know. So when people come out and say something that, isn't necessarily well supported with evidence, uh, it's still a more attractive position. So a good example of what you're talking about, obviously, is the story around hydroxychloroquine, right? So yep. there, that's a drug, like all drugs, it has benefit, it has harm. And everybody probably knows a patient who has one of the, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or one of the connective tissue disease stories. And they, everybody probably has that person who said, I was exposed to coronavirus, and I was on this drug, and I didn't get sick. Therefore, this drug helped me to not get sick. Um, you know, we as informaticians understand that the data. The problem is, is you're, and you're bringing this up, both of you, really all of us, that there's an accurate way to say that, that is 100% based on data, that is either pro-hydroxychloroquine or not pro. I mean, you can actually make the exact same story based on the words you use. And the media are using words like hydroxychloroquine may, which of course has the opposite of it, which could be hydroxychloroquine may not. <laughs> and our job is to figure out which one of those we should go after. What I, what I find myself doing is honestly just telling people not just what the data show, but what I would personally do. And I feel like as an informatics expert, one of the things we at least can do is stick our necks out and say, here's what I'm reading and what that interpretation is to me. I am not taking hydroxychloroquine until there is more data that it's not gonna hurt me more, with more likelihood than it's gonna help me. I don't think I would take it even if I was in the ICU <laughs> with COVID. No, <laughs> I wouldn't, but not based I would on- <laughs> No, the evidence is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the side effects are real and potentially fatal. Right, I mean, you know, when you look at where it came from, I mean, I don't, Right now, it, you know, if we had this, had, you know, the observations that were made are really, really limited. So they were following people to see if hydroxychloroquine, they were taking hydroxychloroquine and then the level of the virus went down in their bloodstream. But that was expected to happen anyway. I mean, so, right. I mean, it, they could have been wearing red shirts that day and then you would have could say, oh, the red shirt. And we all would have been wearing so, red shirts. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a tension here because in a new, with a new bug and a new situation, we want new ideas. 
So there is this tension of we want to be exploring new ideas for treatment and for management of this. We just can't let the horse out of the barn too fast. Right. And that's really, really hard to do because you don't want to say in the beginning of science, but you want to make sure good science happens before you actually do anything at a population level, which makes it hard. And I will acknowledge that, you know, I, I'm not on the front lines of treating, you know, really sick patients with COVID. And it is um, tempting. Uh, and I, maybe that's not the right word. I mean, these pe people who are desperately ill, um, you want to offer the hope of something that could potentially help them. I, I just think we need to look at the origins of the idea and how it got out. And um, it's just, it was a, it, it's a little bit unclear to me why this is suddenly the idea of the day. There's actually a lot of other ideas that probably have more promise. I, I think the message with this that, sh that Shannon and Charlie are kind of reminding us of is we can have this conversation with, you know, a, a certain amount of objectivity because we understand data, we understand numbers, we understand do no harm, we understand relative value, all these fancy things. But at the end of the day, maybe one of the jobs of informatics is to get beyond the data to why certain treatment decisions make sense and maybe why other ones should be considered. There's so much um, media hype and there's so many media sources you can't trust and yet people trust them. Listen, I was having a lot of stress in my life and not sleeping as much and I called up Xfinity and I canceled CNN and Fox News because and you know what? The quality of my life improved because I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know what was true. And that's, that's the same with what's going on now with the viruses. Where is the true facts? Who, which, which sources can you trust? And who's going to feed you the straight line and not BS? Is Vanderbilt doing enough to let you guys know to go to our website? Is that, would that help if we said, you know, big article in the Tennessean, here is a source of truth. Please turn off your television. I, I think a lot of people trust Vanderbilt. So that's, that's a trustworthy source for medical information. So yes. I can send that link out. I know a <laughs> few people on social media. Yeah, you do. Shannon resists. So, I mean, maybe that's something we should be doing. I, I actually, I would actually say that's a part of what we should do in informatics, right? Informatics is about aggregation of information and communication of information. So at the lowest level, I think helping people to know that there is a trusted source of information and being, helping them to find it's probably our goal, probably our responsibility. We also were talking about the value of all this data. Talk to us about what data can do. At this point, Charlie and Shannon could be asking this question, but at the end of the day, so what? The horse is out of the barn. This disease has taken off. At the end of the day, there's no vaccine yet. So we're all gonna get this, right? Mm -hmm. why, do you, why does it matter that we would do research on anything if there's nothing we can do to stop it. I would say uh, that one of the things we realized in the United States that even though we're an incredibly wealthy country, um, there are limits to our resources, uh, particularly when you think about public health. And some of those limits probably shouldn't be as low as they are, but at the same token, when we think about what we need to do in the next 12 months, we have to sort of figure out where are we gonna put, where's the best place to, for us to put our efforts? And those efforts might be related to testing people, uh, that may be related to figuring out who can go safely go back to work, uh, and what are the policies that we need to have in place to keep people safe from perhaps another surge of the virus, assuming that this current surge is going to abate pretty soon. So I think information, informatics can really inform all those different strategies. And so one of the things we're really interested in is getting at how can we determine someone's personal risk? And that personal risk is gonna be related to their current characteristics, like how old they are, uh, and also their medical background, what kind of uh, diseases they may have accumulated over their lifetime, and then maybe things that are hidden that we don't know about. Uh, so that's uh, such as their genetics. And those are things that we'd really like to figure out very quickly so that we can determine, let's say in the fall, uh, who are the first people that are going to get a vaccine? Who are the first people that are going to get uh, screened with new fevers? Um, all of those policies need to be sort of put into place over time. I would say 
from a public health perspective. So I'm thinking less about the personal risk and more about the population risk from the population side. And the reality is that this doesn't end without a strong public health response. And a strong public health response doesn't happen without good data. So as soon as we start to think about, you know, we think about public health response, we're thinking about social distancing strategies. We're thinking about contact tracing. We're thinking about testing. We're thinking about isolation and quarantine in the right situations. None of that happens without knowing what's going on, without knowing who's been exposed and who is positive, and so who we can, can address to do these things. So when we think about a potential decrease possibly coming up in social distancing parameters, either because executive orders get lifted or because people just experience fatigue from this, if we aren't pairing that with very strong testing and contact tracing to go after the virus in the community, we're going to fail. So that's where data is extraordinarily important, both in terms of testing and reporting data, but then also contact data about who's, who's contacting whom, who is with whom, and who might they be infecting. I'm thinking about right now how people are lose a little hope because the way it's perceived now, you can't get tested unless you're symptomatic and in the hospital. It's like everyone would like to know, what's my status? So I can either isolate or I can uh, go out and infect everybody I can because those people are out there, <laughs> do that. you know, so that I don't die alone. Um, oh. What I'm saying is that I think people lose hope when they, when they think it's only for the elite to get tested. Yes, I think that's part of what the drumbeat of public health is. We have got to get testing out there available and equal. I think to your point, one of the things that this pandemic is showing us very clearly is the disparities in our health system. It is very yes. strongly becoming apparent. Um, who gets testing, who gets treatment, um, who has access to um, a life where they can even follow the quarantine and isolation recommendations that we're making. So um, you are absolutely correct, but testing has got to be one of our major drumbeats. And there's an informatics role for that. I feel like, I feel like this is really macabre and you may want to cut this out, but I'm used to that. Um, <laughs> you know, every, that every episode when, Shannon's been on, she has said that exact phrase. It always <laughs> scares me. So go ahead, go ahead. And sometimes he cuts it out. Um, so I've lived through something like this before. I was in Boston in the 80s, mm -hmm. and young men were getting sick and dropping dead all around me, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. I mean, nobody talked about it. Nobody did the right thing. And it wasn't until Rock Hudson died that people went, oh, this could really happen to everybody. Hmm. And I feel like we're at this point where you've got um, people that are politicizing and, and trying all this. I, I feel like this is just it's heavy on my heart. And I know this is macabre, but I do feel like somebody really well-known is gonna have to get this disease for people to snap out of their lunacy. Is that awful? No. I mean, I feel like we need that poster face on this because a lot of people, especially in our state, are still not taking this seriously. And it scares me because we're not a very healthy state to start with. You don't think the John Prine situation will help? I think I it helped don't. in Nashville enormously because people are wanting to, uh, John Prine was 73 years old right. and he went through this horrific cancer treatment and then boom, right. wiped out by a virus. And, uh, and he was a comfort to a lot of people just being alive. So, I think it is. It has been a wake-up call as far as, hey, this can affect us in our community, and 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 it's going to get us if we don't do something. Well, especially in Music City, I think it it tore a hole through us. But I'm just saying, from a a broader perspective, we don't really have this scenario. I mean, I know of this week a 30 year old doctor in new york she died she's got two small children some of this information we just don't know do you, is it how much you're exposed to the virus does that have something to do with how lethal it is if you just get a little bit of exposure i mean you know it, it's hard to know and you know i and i'm concerned and i'm nervous well i'm crazy nervous because uh, one of my songwriting friends just contracted the virus. Now he lives in upstate New York, but he said he was washing his hands, 
He was sanitizing things that came in the door. He wore his mask to go to the grocery store. He did all the things that were in the guidelines and still contracted the virus. Do we now have data or are we collecting the right data to answer these questions? Um, first of all, I thought uh, Shannon's comment about there's very different outcomes in what seems to be uh, the same infection. So, so it's very hard to predict right now what someone's outcome is going to be. And that does make people scared. I understand that. And I, that's, the, that's what we want to be able to explain as quickly as we can is who's at higher risk and why are they at higher risk? Because that's going to help us not only treat people, uh, tailor the treatment when they come through the door, but also to design prevention strategies that are targeted. Because we can't do social distancing with everyone all the time in perpetuity. We have to be able to target that. So that is absolutely the number one research question. And we are collecting a lot of data to try to start to answer that question. I think what's a little bit unclear is how quickly we're going to be able to answer that question. Just because the research data is um, not, it, it, we've not had the time to design really uh, studies that include an, a, a population. Uh, we've had to sort of take the data that comes to us. And so that means we have to be really careful about how we interpret it right now. We know in Nashville, for example, certain kinds of people are getting tested and it's the people who are a little bit better off. So that's the data we have in hand, and that may not help us explain what happens to people who aren't so well off. Um, so we need to actually sort of increase our ability to, uh, to accumulate data for all people. And then we have to be really thoughtful about how we interpret what we find. Uh, and I'll give a quick example. It's like our early, one of our early analysis was that, and some people may have seen this in the last couple of days, to you're at higher risk of the virus if you live in a richer zip code in Nashville. Now, that may be due to a couple of things. It could be that that's where the outbreak started, and it also could be that that's where people are getting tested. So I don't think we can actually untangle those two potential explanations right now. So can you, can you give me some hope and tell me when you think nationwide testing is going to be available? I think Charlie wants to hear the answer to that one, too. Yes, I do. I think that... Make a prediction. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the challenge is that right now, if you are affiliated with uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, actually, you can get tested a lot more easily than if you live, you know, far away from a major center. And... So we do have testing available, particularly for folks who are in Nashville, but there is a essentially a shortage of the things that you need to run that test. And that shortage is gonna get more and more acute uh, as we test more and more people. So I do think we need a national effort to ramp up all the, thing, all the components that you need to run that test. Um, so it's a part of that is really kind of out of our control locally. So I, I think there will be a lot more testing available as time goes on, but that is something that's come a little more slowly than we'd like, obviously. And, and it's important for me to say, Melissa, I really want to hear your answer, but I really want to make sure people understand who are listening and for you guys, everything we say is out of date the moment you hear it. Yeah. So, yeah. so right this second, we know that there are a number of point of care tests that are currently available in various smaller communities here um, I'm trying to hesitate, I'll hesitate saying a lot, except to say I know that Walgreens and CVS pharmacies have some point of care testing. Unfortunately, I need to also say that there is a thing called test performance. Most people don't fully understand this. And that while there may be testing, and this is something I would love at some point for Charlie and, and Shannon to think about, while there may be testing, the next question you're going to want to ask me is, so if it says I'm negative, am I really negative? Or if it says I'm positive, am I really positive? Or, to Charlie's point, is it reasonable enough for you to give me peace of mind that my test is negative and therefore I can relax? Or does that actually make us have even more public health worry because of a population of people who may be seeing that their test is negative, but us finding out that their test is negative in let's just say 15% of the patients who actually have the disease. So it's complicated because if you know a lot, even when we get national testing, we're likely to have this scrutiny of, you know, yes, you can do it this way, or you can do it this way, or you can do it this third way. But a couple of these 
aren't really accurate enough for you to make a difference in terms of how you live your life. If we're putting tests up quickly and we're putting standing labs up quickly, that we're not um, putting them out so quickly that we don't understand the true test performance. So we don't want false negatives out there because to Charlie's point, if you get a false negative and then you think I'm just fine and you interact with your family, there's a potential to share the infection. We also don't want false positives because then we're gonna end up treating people um, who maybe don't need to be treated um, inappropriately. And so, and I think we're still learning a lot of the test characteristics. I'll say there was a great report that came out this week or last week, I've lost track of time these days, um, from Scott Gottlieb and his team. He used to be the FDA commissioner. And their, their assessment is that we need to be doing 750,000 tests a week across the country. Wow. And they based that on tests at the peak of flu season. If we think about sort of flu-like virus situations, that's what we need to be doing to really get a handle on this. So if we look at that as our target, we are definitely getting there. Very it even gets a little bit worse, for example, guys, because if you work in a healthcare setting, you probably need to be tested over and over and over again, because we have to get the public to trust as we start coming out of our isolation mm -hmm. that a healthcare setting is a safe place to be, not, a, not the cruise ship equivalent on land, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was terrible. <laughs> that brings up the million dollar question. So the million dollar question these days is whether or not having this virus gives you immunity to it. But even if you had the antibodies and, and everything, couldn't you still spread it? I mean, because the virus lives on surfaces for so long that even if you had the antibodies, you could just go spread it over at Charlie's house that he's so, so let's be clear. So the data about the virus living on surfaces is changing every day. But is what, it? what we know as of right now is that there are certain surfaces where we can recover the virus. Recovering the virus doesn't actually mean it's living, and it also doesn't actually mean the virus can reproduce. So there's three parts to that question from a science perspective. One is, if you leave DNA on a piece of cardboard and I can find the DNA, what does that tell you? and you have to figure out. Well, all that tells you is, I can find the DNA. If you leave DNA on a piece of cardboard, I can recover the DNA, I can infect it, I can take it into another animal, and then I can recover that DNA in their blood. That suggests that it's at least hanging around a long time. And if obviously that animal were to get sick, it would tell you that in fact, the DNA, or the RNA in this case, is a virus that is alive and therefore what we currently believe, again, data will change, is 72 hours on cardboard and you're basically fine. And all you have to do is soap and water your hands and keep your hands out of your face and you're basically fine. That's basically what the data are telling us. Antibacterial um, soap. Antibacterial soap. Um, even things like 409, as long as you follow the directions, which is to is leave my that soap, My regular old soft soap gonna work at the sink over there? Any old soap will do. Just use your regular soap. You don't need special soap for this. This virus is not, this virus is scary because we don't have immunity to it. So a lot of us are getting sick and getting real sick, but it's not that it can't be killed. It's not that tough of a virus in the sense that we can kill it pretty easily with good old soap. So if we use, if we just use good hygiene and good soap, it can kill the virus. And I just wanted to touch on Shannon's point that just because if you mount an antibody response, that doesn't mean that there's live virus in you at the moment. That's an antibody response that says, hey, here's a clue. I have this disease. So the fact that you would test positive on serology does not mean that you can then still spread it. But we're not positive that it can't be reactivated yet. And we are starting to hear stories of potential reactivation. So that's where we're researching. To try. That's as I mean, we don't know a lot of those questions, the answer know. to those, but those are the questions we want to answer. Yep. yep. So as three scientists who do informatics, talking to, to Charlie and Shannon, who have lots of concerns, what would our parting words be about what we in informatics have learned or are doing that they can help us to spread? I'll start. What I would say to you guys is please do not get all of your information from the media. What I would suggest is to use trusted websites. Uh, trusted websites would include the Center for Disease Control and Prevention or CDC.gov, and they have a whole section on this, or to go to your healthcare provider's website because the incentives are at least aligned with yours, okay? So that's what I would say is, is kind of my message. I would say that 
we don't get to beat this virus unless we mount a strong public health response. That this isn't just about what we do, it's what we do at an individual level, but it's also what we do in our communities because everything we do affects our communities. And so we need to listen to the experts when they talk to us about social distancing and take that very seriously as we stand up better testing and better contact tracing um, to really be prepared for reducing that social distancing. And all of that relies on data and all of that data comes into public health and into healthcare through informatics. And so certainly informatics is the backbone of that. And if, if I could put words in your mouth, tell me if I'm wrong. A part of what we need Shannon and Charles to spread in the community is <laughs> right now, while people have tremendous concerns about privacy and healthcare trust, mm -hmm. We have to decide ourselves whether contributing our data to inform yes. the kinds of conversations Melissa is just having is going to basically be okay with us for now. Yep. I mean, I think there is fundamentally that issue too, right, Melissa? Absolutely. We've got to be able to get data, but there are absolutely security and privacy issues that we need to respect and make sure we're doing right. Sort of. Yeah, you uh, you took you took my final word because I was going <laughs> to say that we're really working hard to be good stewards of uh the data that comes to us and we, uh, we want to maintain your trust. Um, but I, I think we should probably end on um, the idea that we need to re uh, have some skepticism about the things that we hear once from sources that we, we don't have any reason to, to really know whether to trust them or not. And so, you know, that could be spread on social media, it could be something we see on TV, Usually the things that are repeated by trusted sources over and over again are, have much more evidence behind them. And the things that are speculative usually are said once in passing. That is such a great point. A great point. Shannon and Charlie, you actually have the last words. So Charlie, any last word? Like I said, like I heard the story yesterday was that the South Koreans who supposedly recovered from uh, the virus were reinfected. And so like, I wanna know, is that true? Please help you find reliable information. Yeah, and, and sources we can trust and people that aren't out to gain anything but public health, you know, public good health. Well stated. Sounds like you should write a song about this. Yeah, boy. There you go. Shannon, what about you? <sighs> what about me? I, I'm going to um, get Charlie to come over and help me clean my house. I've been watching him for an hour. I'm like, I need you over here. I'm kind of taking things every day at a time, and I just feel like I've been asked to stay home so I don't kill people. I think I can do this. Like, yeah. I can do this. I have cheese and crackers and coffee. I'm good. And, you know, um, until we get something better, I think. Yeah, and I wanted to say, Doctor, that song has already been written. It's called Nearer My God to Thee. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so, Shannon, your point, I think, is fantastic, which is also to say, and I think this is a good closing point for us, is there are actually experts telling us what we should do. And these are all things that we can do. Luckily, we're all people who can figure out creative ways to do them. And I think, I think our message to everybody else who's listening to this or watching this is, please, you know, take, take your advice from people on this podcast and experts around the country. Please listen to your experts, because even we are doing that. So you got to do the same thing. Um, yeah, I want to make sure when I close this out that I do it by playing, uh, Charlie, one of your songs. Trouble is. Will do. Great social distancing song there. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, everybody, thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Bye. Wow, that was great. Well, as promised, I want to close out with one of Charlie's songs. He chose this one because he knows I love it, but also because Trouble Is is a song about longing. See if you pick up all the ways this song is a metaphor for longing in life. I've listened to it a lot of times, and I continue to love it as much as I did the first time I heard it. Hope you enjoy it, too, and have a great rest of your day and stay safe.
I'm home. 